Welcome to Inside the Hut. I'm your host, Brooke Pollock, founder of Hut Capital. Inside the Hut is a podcast that talks with leading blockchain venture capital investors to dive deep into their firm, strategy, and approach to a complex space at the forefront of innovation. You can find this and other episodes on Spotify and other podcast players or on our website at www.hutcapital.com. The content of each episode of Inside the Hut is for informational purposes only and should not be taken as legal, business, tax, or investment advice, or be used to evaluate any investment or security and is not directed at any investors or potential investors in any Hut Capital fund. Please note that Hut Capital and its affiliates may also maintain or be considering investments in or related to the companies, funds, assets, or strategies discussed in the podcast. For more details, including a link to our investments and related disclosures, please see www.hutcapital.com. Welcome, everyone, to this week's episode of Inside the Hut with your host, Brooke Pollock. Excited to have with us Imran Khan, co-founder of Alliance Program. Thanks so much for joining us, Imran. Thanks for having me. To get started, would love to just hear about your background, a little more about yourself and how you got to be where you are today. I joined crypto roughly around 2013. I've been seeing it on TechCrunch quite a bit, but there's an op-ed that Mark Andreessen published on New York Times about why Bitcoin matters. And I went through it, read the white paper, and I was pretty much plugged in. Ended up doing a consulting gig at a tier one crypto firm and ended up working at Microsoft where I did a bunch of work on the product group side. But importantly, I helped craft the crypto narrative within the ecosystem. And so the product team started investigating identity as an example. The VC team, which is M12, investigated investable opportunities in crypto. And around that time, I ended up meeting my co-founder, at least with Volt Capital, and launched the first pre-seed fund in that era, which was around the 2018 timeframe. But while at Volt, I've realized also that YC and other accelerator firms were looking down upon crypto, not from a product perspective, but more or less from a regulatory perspective. There are some areas that certain accelerator firms are afraid to dive into. And primarily one of those product sectors was DeFi. DeFi was new. There wasn't any expertise of founders that could help DeFi founders. And primarily we launched, which was called the DeFi Alliance, the Chicago DeFi Alliance back in 2019, primarily predicated on supporting DeFi founders with liquidity. And so being from Chicago, we're home to 60% of the market makers globally. So if you have Jump, Cumberland, et cetera, et cetera. And so worked with Jump, Cumberland, CMT Digital, and many other market makers. And we came up with just a pure mentoring program where we mentor DeFi founders, how to think about building trading products, how do you attract traders, incentives. Etc. And so we launched this mentorship program probably early 2020. We had maybe about 200 applications come in and we selected seven startups, which include Synthetics, Kyber, Xerox, DYDX, and many others. Since then, we've had over 175 startups have gone through a program. Can talk a bit more about that, but that's the high level. That's a great background. And are you still involved at Volt Capital as well? Yes. I sit on the board and primarily help on the long term strategic vision, but I spend 95, 97% of my time at Alliance. So what does Alliance look like today, just in terms of size and team and what the cohorts look like? Yeah, when we first launched Alliance, it was just two people. Now we're a team of 19. And the size of our cohort 
ranges from 20 to 25 startups per batch twice a year. We purposefully keep it small, and we do that primarily to filter out quality. It turns out you're graded on the other types of founders that you bring into the cohort. And so founders judge are the founders. They want to make sure they're just as high caliber as they are. That is where you start to foster really strong relationships that can ultimately pay off for both sides, including Alliance. Our cohorts stay small. And within Alliance, there's probably three different subgroups. The first subgroup is the accelerator team, which is the team that continuously supports our founders. And that's through research, that's through mentorship, product direction, et cetera. Then we have the back office team that includes our general counsel, our head of DAO governance, and our back office includes fund operations as well. And the last uh, bucket is our product team, which includes our engineering team, that includes our design team, and our head of product that is primarily focused on building all of our internal applications that we use today to scale out Alliance. As you guys have been building Alliance, there's a lot of accelerator programs out there in the traditional tech world, a lot that exists today, a lot that have come and gone over the years. Are there others that you try to model yourselves after, or is it a bit unique running a crypto accelerator given the unique things about this space? Post-ZERP environment, we're seeing more and more funds that allocated into space previously at very high valuations are now looking to bring their cost bases down. And so you're probably seeing a flood of accelerated programs being launched by VC firms. And ultimately, the idea is pretty obvious. Everyone wants to get in earlier. And for the average founder, that may make sense. But what founders really look for is how are they getting a zero to one experience from the accelerator program? It isn't just about doing video calls or hearing presentations, but it's really about who's going to roll up their sleeves and really work alongside the founders until they get to product market fit. And so when you compare us to all of the other accelerator programs that are out there, I would say that we've had many zero to one experiences from the founders that came through our batch. If you go on our site, alliance.xyz slash companies, you could see all the companies that have launched from our accelerator program and total output in terms of valuation is about $10 billion. And so that kind of gives you an idea of the type of work that we do and the way we support our founders. Yeah, I guess the $10 billion that you just referenced, how many cohorts have you guys done historically and how often does it run? So we've ran up to today, 12 batches, a total of about 175 startups that have gone through our program. Okay. And it's what, three times per year? So three cohorts per year, is that right? It used to be. We realized even doing three batches a year is way too much in terms of the amount of support that you can actually offer any one founder. So our NPS score was trending down because of so many batches that we were doing, and they're cutting one and keeping it two. So I want to go through a lot more detail around all things around the accelerator. The first piece of it is just the investing side of it. Alliance does invest in startups that go through the accelerator. How does that work? Is there any structure around it? Is it ad hoc? Can you help us understand that? Yeah. So we go through a very systemized process. And the process is filling out the application. We ask for detailed-oriented questions. One, to see if founders actually put in the work to think about their product. Funny enough, we host a lot of in-real-life events. And many of the founders that reached out to me said that the questions that you ask actually help us synthesize what our product really is and who it should go after. And that's the type of experience that we want to create. We don't just want anyone to just mass fill up 25 accelerator applications and see where they can get in. It's really about who are the type of founders that actually apply 
how long have they thought about their product? Are they serious about their company? And are they the type of first principle thinkers that we want in our program? So we have the application process. Internally, we review the applications. We have many conversations about a lot of these startups. And then we go through a two-step interview process. The interview process averages out to be 45 minutes each, two people each. So total four people, four different eyeballs. After that, we go through a conversation about the product, the company, the team, and then we decide whether or not we want to admit them to the program. So it's a very strenuous process. Do founders have to take capital to go through the program or is it depends on the situation? There was a point where we did have the program to be free, but once you get to a certain size, the unit and economics, they don't work for Alliance. And so we've moved to a new model where we just invest in every startup because in fact, every startup needs capital anyways. And so we just made it a lot easier for both sides to coordinate. My understanding is that you'll make that upfront capital investment, but you don't really do follow-ons. What's the thought process there? Follow-on investments, we thought long and hard about, and we've realized that isn't our job. Our job is a platform for other funds, venture capital firms to leverage us as a way to seek out the quality founders from the non-quality founders. It's better for us not to overstep our lane. And make sure that we just focus on what we do best as being a best platform for both founders and investors. Yeah, we see some accelerators worry about signaling risk, where if you might follow on with one startup but not another, given you guys are going to know these startups quite well, it creates a certain signal to the market and just wanting to avoid that altogether. Is that a factor here? That is definitely a factor. But for us, mostly learning from our experiences, doing one thing right is probably better than two things mediocre. If you look at Y Combinator as an example, when Gary Tan took over, he ended up cutting the growth team, which did the follow-on investments after YC startups got more and more successful. So that kind of gives you an idea of where our lane is, why you can just focus more on the founders versus doing extra things. So if you're investing in startups, you need money, of course. Where does the capital come from that you guys are investing? We have some long-term partners like yourself and many other strategic investors that have been in line with the Lions for a very long time. So they include large trading firms, they include protocols, they include individual builders. And the idea behind this is obviously LP capital for the most part is passive, but we've tried our best to align with those that want to help our founders out. What we've done is what we believe is a pretty strong diligence process to at least shift who could support our founders versus not. And then we try to work with those capital allocators. And that's the way we've done it historically since Alliance Fund 1. So you guys have a series of venture funds that you raise like any other venture firm in that sense. And that's where the capital comes from? Yeah, the capital comes from venture funds. They come from fund of funds. They come from individuals, builders, protocols, DAOs, many participants in the ecosystem. You were talking a minute ago about what you look for in applicants in terms of like the application process. Curious if there's anything else in particular that you're looking for in applicants. And also you have a certain number of startups, each cohort. Are you trying to build a cohort in a certain way where you want a diverse representation of different subsectors or maybe chains people are building on? Or is it purely, we're just taking the top 25, we don't care what they do. It's just more from that perspective. Curious how you guys think about crafting or building a cohort. We are agnostic. And so it's interesting you mentioned this because our applicants, the data from the applications dictate where the future is going. And here's an example. In August, 
2020, we started to see a rise of Solana applications, a hockey, hockey stick growth up. And this was around the time when we want to throw numbers out, Solana was trading around $3. And that gave us a signal that we should be working with Solana ecosystem much more closely. And so we allow the data to dictate where we should be focusing our time. And we try to stay agnostic. I know there's a lot of tribalism with people that are holding different types of tokens. And so we want to do our best to keep our vision clear and focus with the best ecosystems that are providing the support that founders are looking for. So that's from an ecosystem perspective. I'm happy to dive deeper into what we are looking for in terms of trends as well. The trends change often. It turns out that 10 years ago, when I got into crypto, the reason why I got into crypto was because payments is one area that excited me the most. Obviously, this complete decentralized way of issuing assets like Bitcoin, et cetera, are really cool. But really what got me really interested in crypto was the fact that you could build different types of primitives. And one primitive I was most excited about was payments. It turns out payments was not the reason why crypto became successful. It was because of speculation, which then turned to DeFi, NFTs, etc. But now coming full circle, we believe the trends that we're starting to see is payments. And there's a few factors for this, right? One is stable coins are starting to grow heavily in terms of usage. Let's look at South America as an example. The biggest penetration of stable coins in South America is actually Tron USD. And people are using that as a way to hedge against their currency, hyperinflation, et cetera. It's a real thing. And that is increasing month over month. And we've recently spoke to a few teams that are working on remittances between Mexico and the US, whereby they're launching stablecoin swaps so people can send money, US dollars to Mexico, it automatically converts into pesos using USDC rails on WhatsApp. And they're growing incredibly fast, almost 30% month over month. And we're starting to see these types of resemblances in Africa, India, and other parts of the world, less so India, but more so Africa. And so we think stablecoin payments is probably ripe for disruption at this point. And is that largely cross-border payments that people are using the payments function for? That's right. You mentioned Tron USD. I mean, I think for most folks in the States, they would assume people are using USDC or Tether. Why do you see Tron USD as so popular in South America, for example? Two reasons. We have quite a few founders that have gone through a program that are from Latin America. And so we're pretty involved in what's happening in that ecosystem. And in fact, we have two team members that are from South America as well, one in Brazil, one from Venezuela. And what they're telling us is that USDC could be censorable, at least from their point of view. It's not censorship resistant. USDT has a lot of negative narratives. It could be taken down by the US. There's regulatory concerns, et cetera. And Tron, Justin Sun himself is a very shadowy character. And to some, it gives them more belief that he is a person that would resist any type of censorship push or regulatory push is what we're hearing. I'm not clear if this is the right narrative, but this is what people are saying. And so because of this character, Justin Sun, being this shadowy character, people instill more trust in him than the other two stablecoin providers. Interesting. Yeah, I would have not have anticipated that. So that's really interesting to hear that that's what you're hearing from folks down there. Okay, cool. So I'd love to come back maybe more to the trend stuff in a minute, maybe going back to the accelerator program for a minute. As you alluded to earlier, you guys started as a DeFi accelerator providing liquidity. It's obviously significantly broader. Today, you have startups across pretty much all subsectors within crypto or most of them. How do you handle all of them 
You have gaming startups and DeFi startups and infrastructure and DPIN. How do you have programming that is suitable for all of them and make sure that you can handle such a diverse group of startups and provide productive programming? There are a couple ways. One is we have expertise within Alliance that supports our founders. So gaming expert, Will Robinson. We have David Ma that's really deep into zero knowledge proofs. We have Mohamed Fouda that focuses a lot on the bleeding edge tech. So restaking, et cetera, modular thesis. Chow and I are more generalists. So we focus more on the entire ecosystem and we try to see where the narratives and trends go next. That's the way we support our founders from an individual domain expertise perspective. Now, number two is I'm going to go back to my earlier point about why we're so anal about who we bring into our program is the fact that founders help founders. Alpha founders, type A founders will always support each other. It's indicative of Y Combinator founders, whereby they would tweet and say like, hey, application deadline's coming up. I'm happy to give you feedback for you to apply to the program, how to do a pitch. Those are the types of founders that we want. And so we believe that our founders help other founders to offer that support that's missing from within the core lens group. And then finally, it's our software and our community. So the software enables our community of DAO members to help support the founders in our cohort. So we have an internal product that allows founders to connect with our DAO members and our community members that are very close to Alliance to offer that additional high-touch support. Whether it's just an introduction to get into the product team, or if it's a partnership, et cetera. The accelerator program itself, I believe it's a 10-week program. What is the actual accelerator consist of? What does that programming look like? What happens for that 10 weeks? What happens primarily is we have lectures throughout 12 weeks. We have a two-week in-person orientation day slash sessions. This is not public yet, but we are opening an office in New York. And we're slowly manifesting ourselves to becoming more or less like Y Combinator for crypto. And so with this office space, we'll be doing pretty much everything in person now. What we've realized is that you cannot offer the degree of support you can via remote versus being in person and working alongside our founders. Two is serendipity is actually really good. Having these types of conversations can lead to a lot of creative thinking that can enable new products to be launched. And three, New York is becoming the hub for crypto. And so a lot of the people within our radius, even in a one mile radius, are incredible amount of builders that are already there they can seek support from. Interesting. Yeah, we've been seeing that as well in terms of more folks flocking to New York from the Bay Area included. You guys work with tons of startups across crypto. You see a lot. What are the biggest pain points for folks going through the program? Is it capital they need to raise money? Is it talent and hiring? Is it connecting to customers and corporates, potential sources of revenue? What are the key pain points that you see most often? To me, it's just not understanding crypto. Everyone runs towards trends. And the idea is, who are you actually building for? Because the beauty about crypto, and I also think, which is a bad thing about crypto, is the unlimited potential that you could build for. There's millions of primitives that are out there, and you can build so many different things. But the idea is, which of those products are you going to build that's going to actually touch a real user? And how are you going to solve the pain points of their day-to-day lives? And it turns out there's a big disconnect, which is why we haven't got to product market fit as a whole. Yes, you have 30 million, maybe 50 million monthly active users on MetaMask. But if you compare that to even AI or any other trending sector, that's peanuts. And so the question is, what is it that we're trying to solve for people? Which is why we're so bullish on payments today, because payments is in an order of magnitude 
slower and costier. So I send money back to India once a month and I use Remitly. Remitly is pretty good for a Web2 product, but there's still a lot of friction in sending money back to India. And the cost, between the costs and just the guardrails in place, it just makes it really hard for me to send money back home. And with crypto, I can do it instantaneously. And so bringing that type of product innovation into the real world, I think is going to 10x anything. So those are the types of things that we think about. You talk about sending money to India once a month using Remitly. You could just use a self-custody wallet and send to someone out there, but that's not consumer-friendly for everybody. Is there an equivalent crypto payments app that is very consumer-friendly that you could do that with? There's so many that are coming out. We, in fact, invested. There's one startup in our batch that's solving that for Africa. We have one for India, and there are some that have already launched publicly, like Sling.Money. That's built on Solana. There's also Beam. And there are a couple of others that are launching as well. So between the increased usage of stable coins, the right rails that are being built by Circle and Jeremy and team, along with more clarity where crypto is at, and then the UI UX and the private key management and all of the other things that are being worked on, I think we're very close to building a killer app for crypto. And it's probably going to be payments to start. Back to the accelerator, you guys have a demo day. I guess most accelerators do. Does everyone make it to demo day? Is there a process that people have to go through to present or is it an automatic process for all members? Yeah, we actually go through a vetting process as well. We watch our founders, we assess our founders, and we want to make sure that every sprint that we do, every exercise we do, we have their attention, they're 100%. Some founders don't meet our quality in terms of our bar, the quality of excellence throughout our program. We don't allow them to participate in Demo Day and they have to make it up again and they'll re-enroll in the next batch and try to prove what they have and then get accepted into program. So like last batch, for example, we had a failure rate of maybe 15%. So the way you'd want to think about it is similar to school. You have to give it what you got and you have to show it that you want it because ultimately we're putting our brand alongside the founders that are coming out of our community. And if investors invest, it turns out the quality is in there, then that is our reputation as well. So we want to make sure that we hold a high degree in terms of reputation for both our founders and for our investors that are investing in the founders in our program. And those that haven't gotten to Demo Day, do they tend to try again next cohort or is it hit or miss? No, they do. Maybe 95% of the time they will go through the program again and do really well. Sometimes you get one founder that ends up pivoting or they end up just not being able to hit their goals. Demo days themselves, I've been fortunate to participate on some of the past, have been really enjoyable. In terms of helping the founders to raise capital, have you found the demo days to be fruitful? I don't know if you have data around it. Have you seen that folks who go through the cohort, do the demo day, have been successful in raising capital or has it been a struggle or what have you seen there? It depends on when founders are raising. It turns out after the FTX implosion and three arrows, it was a much tougher time to raise for obvious reasons. But we got most of our founders down the line, except for one. So I'd say for the most part, our hit rate is over 95%. But there are, as a macro news or macro situations where it may make it harder for our founders to raise and or the product just doesn't align with what investors are looking for. Post demo day, post the accelerator program, is there any ongoing support or anything formally or informally or what happens thereafter? We continue to offer support to our founders. We do this in a few ways. One is 
We all have an active chat that we set up with every one of our founders where we continue to stay up to date. We send digest emails. We have our internal software that enables any founder to continue to connect with us, whether a call or if they just have a Q&A that they want to ask our community. But we stay active. We host a once a year summit as well for our founders. And so there's four or five triggers that we look for to continue keeping the engagement active. So you're talking about payments a minute ago, a trend that you guys are excited about. You were also saying how the data that you see in terms of applicants to the program is often telling you where the future is headed in terms of focus areas and what people are building on and so on. What are you seeing today? I mean, one, are there other emerging areas you guys are excited about? And then two, what is the data around applicants telling you today in terms of what might become more prominent in the future versus now? There's some really cool trends that we're seeing. One trend we're seeing is RWAs. Obviously, RWAs is probably consensus at this point. For those that don't know what RWAs are, it's called real-world assets, bringing real-world assets on chain. BlackRock, Larry Fink talks quite a bit about it. We had the recent launch of Ando yesterday, or at least their token yesterday. And so they bring tokenized treasury bills online. So it's easier for anyone with stable coins to allocate to T-bills. So we're seeing different elements of that being brought online. So one is real estate. And the really cool thing about the startup is the fact that they take positions in equity of the house versus debt. And so it's much more cleaner in terms of what you're investing into. There's a very cool way that they're solving it. So real world assets is one. What we're seeing is NFT options and leverage being built. So financialization of NFTs now. We're starting to see on-chain music, wallets for cross-border payments in Central America. We're seeing B2B payments and cross-border payments. We're seeing copy trading platforms. We're seeing gaming engines being built on-chain, on-chain FX, tokenized watches, on-chain games, tokenizing maps for the real world. That's a high level of a couple of trends that we're seeing. Geographically, I'm curious as well. I mean, you've mentioned startups, various parts of the world so far, but one, I'm curious if you have a sense of geographically what your cohort and applicant set looks like. Is it pretty US-centric? Is it very global? And then likewise, in terms of trends, if you've seen that change over time. Yeah, over time, we were pretty US-centric. I'd say 60% US, 40% global. Turns out that over the past year, that's been trending down. So we're probably less than 50% US now, and probably 60% global. And it's in line with Electric's developer report, which shows that US developers are actually going down. And India, Africa, and Europe are either stabilized or they're going up. So it's indicative of what we're seeing. And we could talk about why, but that's what we're seeing. I guess I am curious about why. I don't know if that's due to regulatory concerns in the US that's pushing folks overseas or if it's other reasons, but I'd be curious if you have thoughts around why you're seeing that. You hit the nail. It's regulations. I also think US is very narrative driven. And so a lot of the people that would like to build startups are probably going after the near shinier object of AI. And turns out it's really hard to build really cool crypto products for the US because US is pretty established versus something like India and Africa, where although their payments are pretty in line in terms of the products that built there. So like an example is India has something called UPI, which is a very easy way to send and receive money. Africa has something called M-Pesa, or at least parts of Kenya and other parts of the countries. But 
broadly speaking, there's still a lot of infrastructure issues and crypto can be used as a way to solve it. I see reasons why crypto is much more interesting for them versus the US. And so you're starting to see more and more founders flock to those types of use cases, solve immediate problems that they're seeing day to day. Yeah, that's exciting to hear. I'm curious in terms of where people are building on, you were mentioning earlier how you saw an increase in people building on Solana back in, I think it was August of 2020. I'm curious what you're seeing today, if you see folks building more or less on certain chains versus a year or two ago. And for you guys, do you care necessarily what people are building on? Or is it just a function of what is appropriate for what they are building and the type of startup that they're building and not really one size fit all in that sense? Generally speaking, we don't care. But if we get someone building on, say, a Tezos, then we question the founder for the reasons why. We want to hear a compelling reason on why you're building there because the friction to building in ecosystems with lack of support will add more time and cost to the founder's goal of getting to product market mm-hmm. fit quicker. There's obviously edge cases of what we look for, but we try to stay as agnostic as possible, generally speaking. So you guys have been pretty public, maybe more so your partner Chow, just on social media and such around. You saw a lot of VCs pushing founders to move away from Solana after the FTX collapse, who go back and build an Ethereum. And you guys still encourage folks to build on Solana. I'm just curious why that was the case then. And if you still see a lot of momentum around that ecosystem, which definitely has a lot of narrative around it currently. I actually put a tweet out January of 2023, I think. My tweet was as follows. It said, we have a lot of investors that are telling founders after demo day that they're not going to invest in Solana founders because they don't believe Solana should exist. There's no reason. Investors are asking these founders to pivot to Ethereum or they're not going to invest. I put a tweet out saying, why is this the case? This shouldn't be the case. Investors shouldn't dictate where founders should be building. If you think about it, crypto is very price driven, unfortunately. And so for some reason, people think that the price going down is some sort of indication of the technology but it obviously isn't. And so our core belief has been that many layer ones will thrive. And it just depends on the type of stack that founders are looking for. And for us, we thought Ethereum is incredible with all of the layer twos like Polygon, Arbitrum, Optimism. And I think there's a future for all of them. And I also think there is a future for monolithic chains like Solana that are looking for different types of trade-offs versus what Ethereum has to offer. And we'll see different types of applications being built. So if you think about what Helium is doing, by moving over from its own chain to Solana, I think there's some really interesting use cases for Solana to become more of a consumer chain. Not saying that is what's going to happen, but it's an interesting thought process. And we're going to see other chains, right? So if you look at Monad or, say, building parallelized EVMs, if you look at Sui and Aptos, they're building parallelized chains supporting the movie ecosystem, as an example, which is a different language that they use that offers better security parameters. So I just think that all of this is just going to look like a stack and founders are going to look for the product they want to build and what stack will give them the best trade-offs to build the best product for the users that they're trying to attract. Thinking about the future of Alliance, we've talked about what you guys look like today. What do you think Alliance looks like in five years? I mean, do you have any major goals in terms of firm building or scale or additional focus areas? Or do you think it looks pretty consistent to what it looks like today, just five years later? I think 80% of it were there already, which is we want to be a credible accelerator program that supports our founders. We have a thriving ecosystem that sits within our DAO that supports our founders. We have incredible community members. We have our research team that's putting out great research. 
for founders that are looking to build in space. We have a podcast as well that continues to deliver key facts that we're looking for. So in terms of what we're doing, I think we're very close to manifesting what we originally started out to do, which is to become the premier accelerator program for crypto. And with the launch of our office, I feel like we come full circle. And so for us, it's just continuing to improve, keeping the eyes on the prize, and making sure that the best founders in the world come and apply to our program. Yeah, that's great to hear. And for those who aren't familiar, the podcast, which is called Good Game, is great and definitely encourage everyone to check it out. Out of curiosity, have you found the podcast to be something that's been a good tool for brand building and awareness? I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. For us, it's a forcing function to continue learning. Selfishly, I use this as a platform to continue learning about new trends in the space and learn from others. Two is everyone has opinions in the space. And so we want to put out our opinions and see how founders react to it. And it turns out some founders actually react positively to it. And they reach out to us and say, hey, I actually thought about the same thing. An example I can give you is that August of 2023, we put a podcast out, Why Speculation is a Feature, Not a Bug. And it turns out that was very contrarian at the time because people hated speculation as a form of positive thing in crypto. And it was primarily looked at as a negative thing. In fact, Kyle Samani also listened to the podcast, hated it for what we said. Then he turned around and said, actually, you guys are right. And then he had come on our podcast and we talked about why. We like putting out contrarian thoughts and we want to hear what people have to say. Sometimes we're wrong, sometimes we're right. And it helps us shape what we think the future is going to be for crypto. And we're doing this as a beehive. No one has the answers, but we continue talking to people, we learn, we improve, and we try to directionally be correct. You talked a little about competition earlier, but for founders who are looking for Crypto Accelerator, do you typically find them also, say, I don't know, applying to YC or some of the more standard non-crypto accelerators, or is it more consideration of other crypto native options? I'll say that YC was a competitor to us when we first started, but probably less so. We see them as a positive figure in the space and we strive to be like YC. I think they've built something that's incredible. And even if we can get to 25% of what they've accomplished, I think we'd be very, very happy. In terms of competition generally, I think everyone has their own focus. For us is staying focused on what we want to do best, and that's to support our founders. Yeah. And in terms of folks who have gone through your cohorts more recently, you mentioned earlier some of the folks that had gone through the first cohort, like I don't know, DYDX, for example, and Synthetics, and key players in the DeFi ecosystem who have obviously done quite well since then. If you look at more recent cohorts, are there any folks that have gone through those cohorts that have really progressed you might want to highlight? Two batches ago, we had Tensor. They applied with a completely separate idea. But within our program, we validated the idea of building a pro marketplace for NFTs on Solana. And now they're the number one NFT marketplace. Within three months, they overtook Magic Eden. And within nine months, they have about 80% share of Solana. It's impressive. I didn't realize that they hadn't started with that idea. What was the original idea? NFT pricing via oracles. So oracle price feeds for NFTs. Okay, interesting. So more competing with Upshot, I guess, on the NFT pricing side. That's right. They also had a separate product for staking. They pushed those to the side, focused on this idea. That's the most recent one I can give you. But there's so many that have come through our program. If you go to alliance.xyz forward slash companies, you'll see all the startups that have come through our program. The most important question of the day, if you weren't doing tech and crypto and investing for a living, what would you do for a living? What would you do to make money? I'd probably be in an industry where it's fluid, changing. And then I'd probably be in an industry where there's upsize in returns, whatever it is. 
So a new industry of some sort and probably a founder. Sounds like a good thing that crypto exists then because maybe not a lot of alternatives. <laughs> I feel like crypto is in my DNA. <laughs> is what I'm saying. If folks want to learn about you and Alliance or follow you online, what are the best places to connect or learn more about you guys? They can go through Alliance.xyz to learn more about us. If you're a founder that is looking for support or just have ideas, you could feel free to DM me on Twitter at LMRANKHAN, or you could find me on Telegram, which is on my LinkedIn handle. Awesome. It's a really fun conversation. Thanks so much for joining us, Imran. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Inside the Hut with your host, Brooke Pollock. You can find this and other episodes on any podcast player or at our website, www.hutcapital.com.